0: help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg Kreminski and Colin Andrews. And today, Greg, we've got somebody else joining us. We do. Today we're talking with Jamie
0: Golembeck. He's the Managing Director of Tax and Estate Planning at CIBC Private Wealth Management. As you'll hear, he has a wealth of experience in financial planning, tax and estate, many, many years in the private sector working with investment firms and now with CIBC for the last 12 years, I believe. So looking forward to it.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a great segue from our last episode where we talked about the language of investing and now we're getting into some of the ideas of planning. Absolutely. And I think today I'm going to let Blair
0: Howell stand in for me. Blair is a certified financial planner and he kind of leads the financial planning process for the CM group. And so Blair will be very interested in
1: talking with Jamie as well. Well, with that, enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast. And today we are pleased to have Jamie Gollum back with us. Jamie is the Managing Director, Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC. And you can quite often find him on, well, in an article or a column in the National Post called Tax Expert. He's appeared on BNN, CTV News, The National, and regularly a finance guest on the Marilyn Dennis Show, which, Jamie, I got to tell you, I've never seen the Marilyn Dennis Show because I think it's on during the day. Is that right?
2: Well, that's right. And uh, we actually finished doing that a little while ago, but there are still some reruns that people once in a while find online.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I will look those up. But Jamie's a chartered accountant, a certified public accountant, certified financial planner, and chartered life underwriter. And Jamie, I understand that you're also teaching an MBA course at York University. Is that still something you do?
2: That's right. So we're uh, teaching uh, an MBA course in personal finance at the Schulich School of Business at York University in Toronto. And just finished my 17th year of doing that. And uh, we're getting ready for January 2021. Of course, it's all virtual. Since March. So we're going to be lecturing virtually, but we cover pretty much everything in personal financial management from investing to asset allocation to budgeting, personal finance, life insurance planning, getting a mortgage, tax planning, trusts, estates, everything. All crammed into a 13 week course. So it's been a lot of fun. And it's always interesting because sometimes we end up writing into these students when they graduate here at work at CIBC, where sometimes they get employment. Not because of me. Like because we do employ quite a few MBAs from time to time.
1: Well, maybe they're doing some name dropping during their interview process?
2: Could be. I'm sure they are. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> they are. <laughs>
1: Well, that's the beauty of language, isn't it? So, Jamie, I got to tell you, last week we did an episode on investing language and themes. And I assume during your coursework or teaching the course that you do talk about different language. And I thought it was an excellent segue into today because here we are in these uncertain times and we have lots of people that are looking for certainty during a time when it can only be uncertain. And I'm just wondering, has this led to sort of an uptick in financial planning for Canadians or for people in general, do you think?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think the focus recently on certainly COVID and certainly what's going on right now, people are concerned about health and and mortality and all kinds of things, has really renewed people's focus to get their own house in order. Whether that's something as important as an estate plan, making sure their wills are up to date, making sure they've got valid powers of attorney for property and for personal care, but also making sure that their financial house is in order too when they're looking at potential job losses, government benefits. The CERB, things like that, making sure that they have a financial plan, they have goals, and that they're also tweaking their investment portfolio. Depending on what you were in, some stocks have done extremely well, others not as well. And people also generally have more time. People generally, if you're working from home like me, you're not commuting and uh, you've got more time to sort of focus on some of these other things that really are part of your sort of bigger financial and life picture.
1: Well, certainly more time to think. And sometimes maybe that's not always a great thing. <laughs> right when you're sitting there thinking about uncertainty. But I was just curious about your take on current government stimulus plans and maybe some changes to the tax regime going forward as a result of that. Do you think that's something that Canadians need to worry about? We're
2: all worried about it. I mean, look, in terms of tax rates, people ask all the time, could we see an increase in tax rates? You have to remember that the income tax rates on the personal side are already pretty high, especially compared with certain parts of the U.S. and other countries around the world, we do have marginal rates over 50% in 8 out of 10 provinces. So like where I live in Ontario, it's 53.5% on a margin. That's pretty high. Like, Can you get much higher? There are a few countries, I guess, that have higher rates, but not too many. So I'm not sure there's much they could do there. What they could do structurally, of course, if they're really concerned about raising additional revenues, I mean, their argument is that certainly interest rates are relatively low. This is the greatest time to be borrowing money now. The interest rate is almost zero. And therefore, we can continue to borrow and borrow. Eventually, of course, that catches up with you on an economic basis. But I mean, ignoring the economics behind it, because I'm certainly not the economic expert. But from a pure tax policy, there are things that they have been talking about. There have been reports in the media about the principal residence exemption. So Canada doesn't tax uh, any gains at all on your principal residence, no matter how big, one residence per couple. There's an opportunity there. The government could look at that and say, well, maybe that's too generous. Maybe we introduce some type of principal residence taxation. I don't think it's going to be retroactive. In other words, they're not going to all of a sudden say to all those people who were counting on their home for their retirement savings to all of a sudden now say, oh, sorry, you sell it tomorrow. You have to pay tax on those gains. I think what they would do if they ever looked at that. Number one, they probably introduce some type of exemption, like in the US, I think there's an exemption of maybe it's around $250,000 per person, maybe 500000 per couple. Or what they might do is prorate the gain over years of ownership. So if they say we're on a tax gains after 2020, then they would say if you sold it next year, you would prorate the number of years prior to 2021 over the total years that you own and then get a portion of it sort of tax exempt and the rest would be taxable. So that's certainly one thing that they could look at. There's been some speculation, certainly in the media and a report issued on that. And the other one, of course, that we've talked about before, of course, is the capital gains inclusion rate, which currently is at 50%. We have seen it as high as two thirds or three quarters, if you really go back in time. And we know that capital gains, of course, only affect the wealthy because the average Canadian doesn't have any capital gains that are taxable. Because those are all inside of a registered plan, like a TFSA or an RSP. So if the government sort of looks at the strategy of taxing the wealthy, which is one of the things on their agenda in the last five years or so, certainly capital gains taxation would fit in there. And that's something that could come as soon as a fall economic statement. So we're looking out for those two uh, policy things. We haven't heard anything official. There certainly is no uh, rumors of anything, but these are speculation. By experts in the field that are saying if the government wanted to raise revenue, what could they do?
1: And you haven't heard any rumors, but maybe we just started one.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, certainly there is speculation, but there are certainly no official rumors that the government is thinking about it. Like we haven't heard any comments or any leaks from anyone in government say, yeah, it's something that's on the table. I mean, it was on the table in the election platforms by the other parties that looked at things like that in terms of capital gains inclusion rate, but nothing officially from the Liberal Party, that's for sure.
1: Now, Jamie, on our call today, or recording with me, is Blair Howell. And Blair is a certified financial planner and a financial planner on our team. And I'm going to pass it over to him in just a second here, but I just had one question before that. Blair and I did an episode, I don't know, maybe four or five episodes ago, about having a financial plan versus planning. So we've found that a lot of people that we run across over the years have done financial planning, but they don't necessarily follow the output from the plan. Is that something that you think is relevant? Is it something that you see as an obstacle for people?
2: Well, I think it's a big problem because people go and they meet their financial advisor. They do this nice fancy plan. It's 25 pages. It's printed. It's color. It's got beautiful graphs and pie charts, and then it gets put in a drawer. That's why we and many other firms are eventually moving to this sort of online type portal where we do a financial plan that can easily be updated. You can access it from the cloud. You can read it anywhere. It's not a paper document. It's actually a living document so that every time you go in and meet with your advisor, they can update that, update the plan based on current savings rates, portfolio performance, and different goals. You had a saving for a child in university, they decide not to go to university. So all of a sudden, maybe you have an extra money there. You want to retire at 55, but you get laid off. You find you have to work till age 60 by finding another job. That all affects the financial plan. So I think a financial plan needs to be a living, breathing thing, not necessarily a document that gets filed away in a drawer that's beautifully bound with surlocks and a leather cover, but something that is really available and something that's flexible and something that changes at least every year, if not twice a year when you meet with your advisor.
1: Well, interestingly enough, when we're meeting with clients, oftentimes we say, look, the plan is actually, it gives us the tools to make sure that you're accomplishing whatever it is you want to accomplish. Because I agree with you that a lot of people do a plan, they throw it in the drawer and somebody will say to them, hey, have you ever done a financial plan? And they say, yeah, like five years ago. Well, where is it? Well, I don't know. (laughs) know? (laughs) It's just left aside.
2: Absolutely. So yeah, it's got to be something that's used. And it really is a roadmap. You have certain goals. My goal is to retire at this age with this amount of money. Then you can come back and say to your advisor, hey, my goal is to retire with this amount of money. How come I don't have this kind of money? What are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? How do we adjust our portfolio mix? How do we adjust our asset allocation? How do we look at my risk profile to make sure that I'm achieving those goals? Do I need to take more risk? Am I taking too much risk? Maybe I can be more conservative because I've got more than enough money to achieve my goals. Without a framework, without a financial plan, how can you even hold your advisor accountable uh, to make sure that you achieve your goals?
3: Yeah, and that's stuff we always, well, for years, we've been pushing that. We usually meet a lot of our clients quarterly, going over where they stand, where they're sitting, what changes happen, and review the plan every few years. But technically, we're probably updating it almost after every meeting, just do a tweak here, know where they're going. For the most part, you don't have to make too many adjustments. But going back to one question I was going to ask, Jamie, something you'd said about the government's push to kind of tax the wealthy, and you hear that a lot. But what would you consider in terms of that group, the wealthy, you always hear that 1%, but it seems like even the middle class are being affected. What kind of net worth or income would you consider kind of wealthy in Canada?
2: Yeah. Well, typically speaking, we're really looking at income around the 220000 $250,000. we have seen different reports on that. If you're making $220,000, 240000 somewhere in that range as an individual, not as a family, you'd be in the top 1%. So that would sort of be the highest income. That's really what the government has tended to focus on when they really bumped up the rates about five years ago for the highest income Canadians. So I think that's really what you look at. When you look at net wealth, It's all over the map because, you know, there are people, depending on what city in Canada, Toronto, Vancouver, who have multi-million dollar homes but have no money because all the money's in the home and they've got mortgages and their cash flow is low. So, you know, are those the wealthy people? Well, if they sold their home and theoretically they would have some money, but they're not necessarily high income. So generally I often refer to it as the highest income earners, the people that have the ability to generate every single year, either through employment income, self-employment business or investments or real estate, enough rental income, et cetera, to put them in that sort of top 1% of earners, which would be around the $250,000 range. Canadian dollars, of course.
3: Obviously a big part of your job is estate planning tax everybody likes talking but you know they're intertwined so just kind of talking you know for a lot of our clients we talk about will power of attorney personal directive is is a big part of planning but one thing that seems to kind of come in and out of favor a bit and in Alberta might be a little bit different just because of our probate fee is trust kind of talking about those wealthy people putting money away do you find more and more, or less and less, people are moving towards certain types of trusts. You don't use it as much as you did, let's say, 10 years ago.
2: So, look, I mean, a lot of the tax advantages of trusts have been eliminated. So it used to be about five
3: years ago, we'd recommend a
2: testamentary trust, which is a trust created as part of your will for every single high net worth client, high net worth, having, let's say, over a million dollars of investable assets on debt. And when we do that is because we do what we call postmortem income splitting, where the trust got a separate set of graduated rates. That was all eliminated years ago. So really, there are not a lot of tax advantages right now to using a trust. There's a few things that are left. You can use a trust for income splitting right now. So if you've got a lower income spouse or partner, or you have a uh, perhaps minor children or grandchildren, we've written a lot about using a prescribed rate loan to loan money to the trust at 1% and do income splitting above the 1% on the prescribed rate. But in terms of the trust that we're most often seeing, they're often for unique purposes that are non-tax related. We're seeing trusts set up in the will to have staged distributions. You don't want all the kid getting the money on the day they turn 18. Frankly, we've got clients that, they wouldn't give their kids money on the day they turned 40. So if you want to have any control over when the kids get the money, maybe you want to set up a testamentary trust in the will. Particularly if there's large amounts of life insurance, millions of dollars of insurance, you don't want to give it to all the kids at once. So you might use a trust to have these stage distributions. Other parents are concerned that maybe the kid has issues. They could be addiction issues, gambling, alcohol, drugs, and you just don't want to give them the money ever. So you put the money in a trust and manage it for them after they're gone. Some families are using trust to fund education. So they're putting money in what we call an education trust so that money goes into the trust that all future generations can go to either private school or post-secondary school or any kind of school they want. And then finally, I think people are using trust these days simply in the case of second marriages and new relationships where they want to protect the kids of that first marriage. And the concern is that if they die and leave all the money to that new spouse, There's concern that uh, ultimately if that spouse remarries, then the kids don't get anything. So by putting some of that money into a trust, there is assets to protect in case of a remarriage for the inheritance. So these are all kind of non-tax reasons that we see. Of course, there are specific tax things as well that one can do probate planning and not a big deal in Alberta, but Ontario, BC, Nova Scotia, you have almost a one and a half percent probate tax. We're seeing the use of alter ego trusts. We're seeing trusts for planning for people with disabilities. There are preferred beneficiary elections that can be made with trusts, And then sometimes in the sale of a business, a private company, often if it's done properly, you got to be careful with the new rules. You can own the shares of the private company and therefore multiply that lifetime capital gains exemption of over $800,000 per person using a family trust. So it's sophisticated. It's not for the faint of heart and something that everyone, of course, who's thinking about it should certainly speak to their accountant or lawyer about whether a trust makes sense for them.
1: Jamie, one that comes up quite often in our world, I think there's a general misunderstanding of informal versus formal trusts. And I had one the other day. Client came in and said that their dad had opened up a trust account for her minor son And it was his understanding that when he turned 18, the assets would just flow to the sun tax-free and everybody would be good. And when I talked to her about it, I said, I don't think that's the way it works at all. I think your dad is actually the beneficial owner. And at 18, there would be a deemed disposition and there would be some tax to be paid. Is this a general misunderstanding?
2: Yeah, it's not so clear, right? It has to do with the evidence behind it. So I think in theory, like if you can show that you put money aside, let's say for a minor child, and notwithstanding that if there's income earned on there, like interest income or dividend income, there's full attribution of that income reportable by the parent who put the money in there. Technically speaking, as long as the parent hasn't acted on the money as their own, that could be seen as the child's money. There is case law where children have sued parents on informal trust to get the money if they find out about it at the age of 18. So ultimately, that is certainly a possible concern. Again, if it's done correctly, then theoretically, there would be a rollover out of the trust to the trust beneficiary. The problem is without any documentation that there's actually a trust, you're going to have to prove to CRA that this is actually a trust that was the intention. We have what we call the three certainties for a trust, and one of them is the certainty of intention. So you got to make sure that if the money was really put there and it was documented and the parents never touched it, never took the money out, it's really intended for the child, you could make the case that we have a trust notwithstanding, we haven't filed any trust tax returns, and we don't have a trust document. So we're very wary of it. I think if you're doing small amounts, what is small, I don't know, 10000 or less, who cares? The amounts are immaterial. There's not going to be a lot of income gains on that in most cases, so I think you could take your chances. When you're getting into bigger dollar amounts, tens of thousands or six figures, I would certainly, if you're going to use a trust, I would do it properly and get a lawyer to drop a proper trust deed.
3: Jamie, I have a question not to bounce around a little bit here. I know we talked about trusts a lot, but just in terms of the entire state planning, more and more with clients kind of as our demographic age is how important is that people who are involved in the trust? We talk about privacy and I think we sometimes have that concept of the movie where somebody passes away and everybody's sitting around the table reading the will. Do you think it's very important to have a conversation well before, you know, as the will is being made up of who's involved, who's the beneficiaries, what trust has been set up, how is it going to affect you? Where do you rate that conversation?
2: I think it's really important. I mean, I always tell people as part of an estate plan is to have an open and honest conversation with your beneficiaries, with your kids, especially if you can do anything weird. And what I mean by weird is not treat the kids exactly equally, which is not always the case, may not be fair, but some people do not treat the kids equally. And it leads to enormous resentment later on. Why did kid A get more than kid B? Did dad love A more than B? It's a big mess and siblings hate each other and resent each other. They don't talk to each other for, you know, one case over 25 years because of a misunderstanding of a mom or dad's will. So, I mean, I think it's a good idea to have an open discussion. I don't think you have to get into all the details of how much you're worth if you're not comfortable and how much money you have. But I think if you're planning to do anything other than an even distribution or you're planning to put conditions on the trust, I think it's a good idea to have a family meeting and sort of discuss the overall plan so the kids are understanding. And so that the kids are all on the same page, because you may have kids that need the money now, but don't need the money later on. And therefore, maybe you're going to give them their share of the inheritance now and then equalize the estate later on. Maybe there's a family vacation home, you got a place in Canmore, or you really want to visit it. And ultimately, at the end of the day, the other kid is living you know, all the way over in Toronto and is never going to use the place. So These are discussions. Who gets the family property? If there's artwork, jewelry. These are all very, very important discussions. And I think they should be had in the context of every family's estate plan.
1: Well, and I think that you point out something critical there that, of course, the parents loved one of the children more than the other. And that's why they got more.
2: (laughs) Well, sometimes it's just based on need. And we've seen that in some scenarios. One kid fails to launch or whatever the right word is, and they really need the money now. And therefore, like the other family, the other person's very successful. They went to graduate school. The other person maybe had a disability. There's all kinds of reasons why parents treat the kids differently, which can still be fair, but not equal.
1: Of course, yeah, and of course, I'm just joking. But I got a question for you that comes up fairly often, and this is not necessarily for the clients we deal with, but more for their kids. And the question I get is, should I pay down my mortgage or should I invest some inheritance into an RSP or TFSA? I know there's not. It's not an easy question to answer, but generally how do you answer that?
2: Generally I say don't pay off your mortgage. Like it's pretty simple to me. Unless you got a high rate mortgage, you're crazy to pay off a mortgage when mortgage rates are you know in the two to three percent range because long term you'll do way better investing the money. Now, if you're just gonna put the money in a savings account or in your mattress, that's not gonna earn anything. But if you're going to really invest in a long-term and diversified portfolio, maybe a balanced fund or some other thing, we've shown with our research over time over the last 30, 40 years at least, that you would have been always better off in a low interest rate environment where your mortgages are like 3% or less, not paying down your mortgage beyond the minimum. And instead, taking that money, growing it tax-free inside of a tax-free savings account or compounding inside of an RRSP. You're just going to be ahead of the game mathematically.
1: Well, look, I know we only got you for a couple more minutes. Is there anything that you would point out to our audiences, the most important thing they can be doing right now during a time of uncertainty, this what we call a global pandemic of biblical proportions? What major things should people be focusing on right now?
2: I think people don't need to panic if people really need to get financial advice. Like If people are not comfortable doing this on their own, which you wouldn't be unless you're really in the business full time, then I think people need to reach out. And don't be afraid. There are no embarrassing questions. Reach out to a financial advisor. Sort of sit down with them and just open the kimonos. Show them what you have. Show them your assets, your income, your liability, your debts. There are all kinds of things out there that we can do to help people. But if they don't come and see us, then it's useless. So I think that the most important thing is you really don't panic. There are concerns, certainly with economic situation. There are concerns with the economy, with the debt. There are concerns with unemployment levels, with day-to-day living, absolutely. And markets have been rocky, depending on what you've been invested in. But you can still have a plan. And that's why I think it's really important that you do meet with someone in person, or virtually at least, and you really sit down and you look at what your goals are, and what your dreams are, and then hopefully the advisor, if they're good, we will be able to help you meet those goals over the long term.
1: Well, and we've had a little fun recently, not fun, but it has been, I don't know, enlightening. During talks with clients, they're surrounded by headlines that tell them how awful things are, the world's going to end, all these doomsday predictions, and they relate it to their portfolio without having looked at their portfolio. And when we go through the results of their portfolio, I actually had a woman cry the other day because she couldn't believe that she hadn't lost anything. And I think this goes back to your discussion of having a plan versus following it and being, I guess, open and understanding what's going on and how it actually relates to your situation, not just to everybody.
2: I think that's right. And I think that people forget when you're looking at stock markets and things like that, people do forget that at the end of the day, you don't own the stock market you may have a balanced portfolio in many cases. I remember even with my own parents and looking at other people's portfolios, oh my God, the market's down 15, 20% in March and look at the portfolio and they're only down 6%. How is that possible? Well, you don't own the whole market. You don't have every sector and also you're 60% fixed income, which didn't go down at all. So everyone's situation is different. So don't generalize.
1: You brought up a really critical point there because the discussions we had a year or two ago, people were saying, well, why do I own fixed income? I'm not getting paid very much yield. It doesn't make sense. I should just own stocks. And of course, this year, where do you want to be in March? Probably in fixed income. And it has nothing to do with interest rates or yield, but more with a flight to safety. Is that a fair statement?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. And people are panicking and uh, yeah, so you got to stick to the plan.
1: Well, Jamie, is there any parting message you can leave our uh, listeners today?
2: Most important thing is have a plan, stick to the plan, and work with someone you trust. There are a lot of great advisors out there. If you don't know how to find one, certainly ask your friends and relatives and people you trust. But I think there's a lot of great help, great, great support out there, and you don't have to do this on your own.
1: Right on. Good advice. Thanks for your time, Jamie. Really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Take care, guys.
1: Well, an informative discussion with Jamie Gollenbach, again, the Managing Director, Tax and Estate Planning with CIBC. Really appreciate Jamie coming on the show and lending us his expertise. It's always great to have people like Jamie on the show because
0: he brings a lot of specific expertise to our show and a lot of our listeners have questions that Jamie can answer.
1: Yeah, and you know, what's interesting too is our next episode, we're going to have Carl Richards on the show. That's going to be great. Carl will be joining us from London, England. And we'll be talking about behavior gap and what that means and how we started it. So please join us next week. All right, till next time. Bye bye now.
0: Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.